0: It's good to be here. I bring you greetings from Bronzeville. Anyone? Bronzeville? <laughs> Y'all know we're over in Bronzeville, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, it's been a while uh, since I've been here, so it's really good to see you guys. And um, yeah, I'm glad, to, I'm glad to be here this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them to Matthew chapter 21. Um, and the verses that I'm going to be preaching from today are verses 18 through 27. So before I get into the passage, um, let me just give you a little bit of a heads up of where, you know, what things are going to sound like and look like today. In the few verses that we're going to look at, um, there are what I'm calling three movements. And two of them seem to be completely unrelated to one another. Uh, So the way that I'm going to work through this passage is I'm first going to sort of teach it. And um, I'm going to be asking you to hold on to certain (laughs) key points And then I'll come back and put it all together and get to, you know, the meat and the main point of this sermon. So let's go ahead and get to it. Go ahead and turn the Bibles. Matthew 21 and beginning with verse 18, it reads, Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back into the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of background information just to give you some context. At this point in the story in Matthew, um, we've seen some significant things happen already. We're drawing to the end of Jesus' ministry, and he has already triumphantly entered the city of Jerusalem. And if you guys are familiar with the story, you know that he comes in on, the, on a donkey, and he's met with great fanfare. The people wave palm branches, and they shout, Hosanna. It's a big deal, So he's come into town, and you may also recall that one of the first things he does is go into the temple. And this would have been a common thing to do when people entered the city. So he goes into the temple, and he is absolutely livid about what he sees going on there. And so he grabs a whip and he, you know, he goes off, basically. He turns over tables um, and he tells the people that you have basically turned my house, turned my father's house into a den of thieves. This place that's supposed to be a house of prayer. You have corrupted it. He is highly upset. Now, this is a part of the story that I think most of us who um, are, have been in church for a while or read our Bibles, we usually remember that moment. What's less um, impactful, what's less memorable, is what Jesus does immediately following that. He calls the lame and the blind, and that's important. He specifically calls not just all people who are sick, but the lame and the blind, and he invites them into the temple, and then he heals them. Now, this is important because at this point in time in Israel's history, the lame and the blind were not allowed to come into the temple, and this is because of something, I think, very silly that happened a long, long time ago. When King David captures the city of Jerusalem, the people there taunt him. And they're like, they basically call him a punk. And they're like, hey, even the lame and the blind won't, will keep you from coming in here. So he, you know, obviously comes on in. He captures the city. And he's upset. But the lame and the blind... <laughs> And so at that moment, a saying sort of arises that um, the lame and the blind will not enter this house. So you can imagine what the people watching this must have felt who now are witnessing the son of David say, come in lame, come in blind, you are welcome, and on top of that, healing them. So what we know is that at the close of that story, The religious leaders of the day, the elders, the teachers, they are looking at Jesus and they have decided, oh no, he has got to go. So they have purposed in their hearts to kill him. And so now we get back to the text for today. And at the start of this passage, we see Jesus going back into the city. He leaves Jerusalem, not far, he just goes to Bethany overnight to sleep. And so he's going back into the city and the text tells us that he sees this fig tree and it has no fruit. Now, there are a few things that you should know about this tree. Unlike some fruit trees that only produce fruit for, you know, a short amount of time, um, the fig tree can produce fruit for multiple seasons, and each season has a different kind of fruit. So the first fruit that it produces is a small, sort of immature version of what's going to later become the fig. Um, And at that time, and probably today, this was something that people ate often. So if you, if you ever read through Mark's account of this, he's going to tell you that, you know, it was not yet fig season, and this is kind of why we think Jesus gets mad. And that's true. It wasn't fig season yet, but it would have been reasonable for Jesus to expect there to be some kind of fruit on the tree, and this is what he would have been looking for, this immature fruit. Now, although fig trees can produce fruit for multiple seasons— um, It is not at all uncommon to see a tree that is, you know, leafy, that looks like it might have some fruit, and it not. These trees are apparently very finicky, and if you look at them the wrong way, they will not bear fruit. (laughs) So, again, it it, it, it makes sense that, you know, Jesus should have expected it, but it also makes sense that there was not any there. (laughs) The the last thing you should know is that the fig tree, the fruit that comes on the tree, if it's going to have any fruit, it's there before the leaves. So when Jesus walks up to this tree, he sees this lush, leafy tree. If it was going to have some fruit, it should have had some fruit. So he gets there, and he's hungry, and he decides he wants a fig. He sees this leafy, lush tree, so he's thinking, all right, this is a possible good source to get some food, and it's barren, completely barren. So he curses the tree, and it withers immediately, now, at first reading, this seems like a story about Jesus throwing a fit. You know, like you, you're really, really hungry, you're craving White Castle, and you go there in their clothes, and you just are mad. So that's not, <laughs> that's not what is happening here. <laughs> it's not what's going on. And what I want you to hold on to for right now, we're going to come back to this once we get to the meat of the sermon, but hold on to the fact that, one, this tree, for all intents and purposes, looks like it should have had fruit. It has the appearance of being fruitful. And then two, Jesus is not throwing a temper tantrum. <laughs> All right. So the next movement that we see are, is the disciples' reaction to Jesus. Um, and I call this a separate movement because the conversation that takes place between Jesus and the disciples, if you really think about it, it's a little goofy. And, and I'm going to tell you why I think it's goofy. So As I said, it's not at all uncommon to come across a tree, a fig tree, that is leafy, that is lush, that has no fruit. They do that. So Jesus' actions of cursing the fig tree should have appeared to the disciples as overkill. The question you would think they would ask is, why, Jesus, did you curse the fig tree? Like, why have you decided that the poor tree can never bear fruit? That's not what they ask him. They ask him how he did it. Okay. If this was the first time these people had met Jesus, if this was maybe the third month that they had been walking with Jesus, that question would make sense. You see somebody curse a fig tree, you want to know how in the world did you do that? We are coming to the end of Jesus's ministry. These people have been walking with him for three years. (laughs) They have seen him heal people. They've seen him literally touch a disfigured limb and it be healed, like get rightly figured. I don't think that's the right word I'm looking for. But they have seen him do amazing things and yet somehow this fig tree, like, ooh, wow. <laughs> How'd you do that, Jesus? Like it's, it's a, it's a, it's, a goofy, it's a goofy question. And so I think that what Matthew was trying to do here, I think that the, the question that they ask and the conversation that ensues afterwards are hints to us that, again, one, this is not about Jesus throwing a fit. And that, two, there's something, there's something else that's going on in this passage, something else that we need to see. So the disciples ask him, how'd you do with Jesus? And what he tells them is if they have faith, nothing will be impossible to them. They'll be able to say to the mountain, go, throw yourself in the sea, and it will go. And this isn't the first time that Jesus says something like this. Um, in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus makes a similar statement Now, just a little background. In this story, um, the disciples have been out. They've been doing ministry, and they come across um, a young man who's brought to them who's demon-possessed. And they try to cast out the demon, and they can't. They get their butts whooped, and they're embarrassed. And so Jesus, you know, he goes ahead and casts out the demon. And when they're in private, the disciples come to him, and um, beginning with the the 20th verse—well, I'm sorry, before the 20th verse—they ask him why couldn't we do this? You know, what's, what's wrong with us? Why weren't we able to cast this demon out? And so Jesus' response starts with verse 20, and he says, because you have so little faith, truly I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So Pastor David, who is the pastor of um, the Bronzeville congregation, did a sermon on these verses a while back. And um, one of the points that he made is that what Jesus is getting at here, the issue at hand is not the size of the disciples' faith. And it makes sense when you think about it. He doesn't say to them, you know, if you had faith as tall as the tallest tree, you could say to this mountain, you know, move, and it would move. That's not what he gets at. Instead, he references the tiniest thing they would have been able to imagine at that time, a mustard seed. In other words, this passage could be reset as if you have faith as tiny as this little thing, this mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move, and it would go. The issue is not the amount, the size of their faith. The issue is where they have placed their faith. If you have faith, even as small as this tiny little mustard seed in me, then you can say to the mountain, move, and it will move. This isn't about the amount of faith. It's about where you place your faith. And I think the same thing is happening in the verses that we are reading today. What Jesus is saying to the disciples is basically, if you place in me, in this text he says, if you believe, then nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing that my Father has called you to do will be impossible for you. And I want you to hold on to that. This isn't about Jesus giving them some sort of magic formula of how to get everything you might ever possibly want in prayer. This is about him saying, if your faith is in me, then nothing that my father has called you to do will be impossible for you. All right. So again, we're holding in our minds. Jesus is not throwing a fit. The tree should have had some fruit, (laughs) if it was going to have any, because it appeared to have some. And this is not about a magic potion, a magic Incantation for getting what you want from God. So, this brings us to the last movement. Jesus is now back in Jerusalem and he enters the temple. And the text tells us that he's teaching. And as he's doing that, the religious leaders and the elders come up to him and they ask him, By what authority are you doing these things? Now, they're likely not just referring to the fact that he's teaching. They're also talking about <laughs> going into the temple and turning stuff over and inviting the lame and the blind in and healing them. They want to know, why are you coming into this place acting the way you are acting? What authority gives, has been given to you to do the things you've been doing since you rode up on a donkey a few days ago? <laughs> so to truly understand where these people are coming from, keep in your mind where they were the last time Jesus saw them or they saw Jesus. Again, like I told you, they are not pleased with his actions and they have decided they want to kill him. So when they ask Jesus this question, they're not seeking information. This isn't like, oh my goodness, you are a wise man. How? By what? A th-? No, they are trying to get something They want something on him, right? So that they can have him arrested, bring him to the authorities, and then ultimately have him killed. So this is know where their hearts are. (laughs) Many, if not all of these men, they would have seen what Jesus had done earlier. And so they are not pleased with Jesus. And so in true rabbinic fashion, Jesus says, you know, instead of answering their question, he says, well, I will ask you a question. And he poses this brilliant question to them. And I love it because what he asks them reveals their hearts, and there's no way for them to get out of it without revealing their hearts. Under what authority did John the Baptist baptize? This is a beautiful question because they know. So if they say that Jesus' authority, that John the Baptist's authority came from God, then they have to deal with the fact that you know they had him arrested. They didn't believe him. But at the same time, if they say that, if they tell the truth, and the truth that they believe, which is that it comes from human beings, then they are worried that the crowd is going to attack them. So they're sort of in between this rock and this hard place, and the answer that they give is, I don't know. But keep in mind, this was not a private conversation. There would have been tons of people around, and they should know, <laughs> I don't know is not an appropriate answer for the Pharisees to give when Jesus asked this question. These are the people whose responsibility it was to interpret the signs, to understand what God is doing and to sort of stand in between the people and God. So they should have known by saying, I don't know, what they betray is their utter incompetence. And that's why I think it is brilliant, (laughs) So let's put this all together. We have a a fig tree cursed because it doesn't have any fruit. We have this discussion about faith and prayer. And now we have the Pharisees and other religious leaders unsuccessfully trying to sort of catch Jesus up. So what does all of this mean? We'll go back to the fig tree. So remember, I said that Jesus's actions were not an angry outburst. He's not throwing a fit. He's not acting out because he's hungry and disappointed. The cursing of the fig tree was a prophetic and a symbolic act. The fig tree in this story and in other places in Scripture represents the nation of Israel as it was at that time. And what most commentators say is that Jesus' cursing of the fig tree um, was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen to the temple and ultimately to the nation of Israel, the destruction of both. Um, And so in this way, what he does to the fig tree is directly related to what he does in the temple. He's kind of letting people know something is about to happen. Now, this is absolutely true. I I cannot disagree with the commentaries, but I think that there's something else going on here as well. When Jesus curses the fig tree and he causes it to wither, he ultimately reveals the truth of this tree. He makes the tree look like it is, on the inside, barren. See, this is a fruit tree that doesn't produce fruit. (laughs) Fruit trees are supposed to produce fruit. But this fruit tree is not just one that is without fruit. It looks like it is fruitful. It's lush, it's leafy, and it is completely barren. I think in this way, this fig tree is a lot like the religious leaders of the day. Like I said, the point of the religious leaders, the point of the priests, was to interpret the signs. They were supposed to be the folk that stand in the gap, that bring the word to the people, that usher the people into the presence of God. This was their whole point. And yet they had become instead a stumbling block. They were keeping people from being able to see and accept and recognize the Messiah. And just like this tree, they walked around with every appearance of righteousness, every appearance of holiness. They were lush and leafy and absolutely barren. See, Jesus' actions towards the fig tree is not just a prophetic foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the future to the temple. I think that his actions point to us about the importance of being fruitful. Having the appearance of fruit without bearing any fruit is dangerous, it's harmful to the body of Christ. See, it's often said from the pulpit of New Community, whether it's here or in Bronzeville, that our whole point, our mission, our job as believers is to be a witness to Jesus Christ. We are supposed to point people to what the kingdom is like, what life in the kingdom will be like. Our fruit ought to make people desire Jesus, want to get to know Jesus better. That's why we are here. That's why God invites us into his kingdom. And it's awesome that we get to participate in that kingdom work. But there are a whole lot of us today, and when I say us, I mean the church universal us, walking around lush and leafy and completely barren. Um I've, I've told this story here before, um, but as I was preparing this sermon, it, it came to mind again. And so I'm going to tell it. I have a friend in the, the program that I'm in. I'm in a Ph.D. program in, at UIC. And so there's a woman who is in this, um, in this program. And now if you guys were to meet her, you, I mean, she is an awesome person. Just one of the sweetest people you will ever meet. And you, she's one of those people when you're in their presence, they just, you see light. So I just assumed <laughs> that she was Christian, you know, because I assume when I'm around people and I see light, that the, that the light is coming <laughs> from Jesus. So, I, you know, I assumed that this was, you know, a woman of God. And, you know, we, as I got to know her more, I found out that not only was she not Christian, she was, she's an atheist. <laughs> so I'm like, that wait, what? <laughs> like, that doesn't make sense. And uh, another friend of mine, we joke that she is. She just doesn't know she's fake. Yeah. she She is. <laughs> But, so, in getting to know her story, um, what I found out is that she grew up in church. She grew up in um, a very, you know, a Pentecostal church. Her family, her parents are missionaries. Um, and so, and she, as a young person, was very involved in church, was a very strong believer. Uh, so, around her teenage years, she became a lesbian or realized, decided, however we want to talk about it, she's a lesbian. And so she came out to her family when she was a teenager and she came out to her church and they reacted poorly to say the least. Um, she was basically told by her church that she wasn't welcome there, that God didn't want to have anything to do with her until she could get herself together, which meant don't be a lesbian. Um, her parents, also told her that she was not welcome. And she was actually put out of her house um, by the people, the very people who had instilled this love of God, this knowledge of God. They then said to her, get out. God doesn't want to have anything to do with you. So you can kind of understand how she's come to this place where now she doesn't even believe. So as we've been talking and, um, and getting to know one another, I I pray and pray that she will see a different side of Christianity. And I think that, you know, over the years she has come to see different things and see things differently. But ultimately, this woman was pushed away from God. Somebody said to her, you don't get to have Jesus. Jesus is not for you. See, one of the biggest hindrances to people becoming a Christian today are Christians. And that's a sad, sad thing. But it's true. We walk around lush and leafy with absolutely no love, no patience, no kindness, no fruit. And so we become a stumbling block for people who might otherwise believe. I think, like the religious leaders of Jesus' time, many of us, in trying to be what God has already created us to be, we end up hurting other people we end up hurting ourselves. (laughs) We are lush, we are leafy, but we have absolutely no fruit. And Jesus talks about this earlier um, in the chapter of Matthew, and it's a little bit more harsh the way he talks about it there. But in chapter 7, he admonishes the disciples to watch out for false prophets. And starting in verse 15, I'm going to read it for you. He says, "Um, watch out for the false prophet. They come to you in sheep's clothing Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. See, what Jesus does to the victory is not a random act. It's not him expressing anger about being hungry. His actions reflect the heart and the will of the Father. God desires that we bear fruit. He created us to be fruitful. And we see what this passage says for those who are not. So when he talks to the disciples about their faith, again, he's not saying whatever you believe, whatever you will receive. This isn't a magic potion. He's saying if you have faith in me, you will be able to reflect the will of the Father. Anything the Lord has called you to do, you will be able to do. That is the point of that movement. Okay, so what is the good news? Uh, when I was in seminary, my preaching professor used to always say, you know, every sermon that you preach must have good news. And the good news is Jesus Christ. And so if you preach a sermon and you can, you can break a passage down in a way that will make the best theologians jealous, but if you don't point people to Jesus, <laughs> you have failed. <laughs> so when I first read this passage and started preparing my sermon, I had some problems, because while I could see many teaching points, I I didn't see the good news immediately. I'm like, Lord Jesus, okay. Um, So, the fig tree was cursed. Uh, (laughs) That's not good news. (laughs) So, I talked to my husband, uh, Carlos, about this, because I was sharing with him my frustration as I'm writing my sermon, and I don't usually talk to anybody when I'm writing a sermon. So, this is like, that tells you how frustrated I was. Um, many of you don't know my husband, but, um, just to give you a, an image of the kind of man that he is, you know, when you read books on relationships and dating and things like, things like that, they tell you that men are fixers. They want to make things right. My husband is the epitome of that. (laughs) So I'm talking to him and in the midst of talking to him, I notice him feverishly just typing on his laptop and I'm like, okay, all right. And so I, I finish my sentence, my statement, and then he just starts bombarding me with all this information about fig trees. <laughs> and I'm sitting here like, like, and I'm listening, and I'm like, oh, okay, oh, that's, that's interesting. And yeah, and then did you know that the fig tree, and then the fig tree, and sometimes, and just tons and tons of information about fig trees. And I'm, I'm listening to my husband, and I said, God bless him. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> for this gift. (laughs) And and I walked back to my computer and sat down and still did not see any good news. (laughs) So I'm sitting here and I'm praying and I'm just, I'm trying to figure out like, Lord, what should I say? Like, I'm not going to, I don't want to leave the people with bear fruit or be cursed, right? That's not really uplifting. So I'm, I'm writing, I'm typing and thank God for the Holy Spirit, (laughs) and thank God for my husband. But I promise you, in mid-frustration, all of a sudden, it all started to make sense. All this random information about fruit trees, it hit me. So, uh, I'm going to share with you some of the things that my husband shared with me. So as I've told you earlier, fig trees are very finicky trees. If they don't have the right amount of light, you know, too much light, they won't bear fruit. Too little light, they won't bear fruit. Too much water, they won't bear fruit. Too little water, they won't. I mean, these trees are very difficult To get fruit from. And one of the websites that he pulled up were people who were writing in, and there was one man, I will never, he's like, I bought this dog on fig tree. (laughs) I've had it for five years. I have done everything you can possibly do for a tree. I have spent endless amounts of money, and I have yet to get one fig. (laughs) What am I doing wrong? The fig trees are finicky. Another interesting fact about a fig tree is that um, the fruit that it produces is not really a fruit, the way that we define it. Um, And the flower of the fig tree is on the inside of the fig. So it's kind of a weird, you know, it's it's a weird kind of fruit. (laughs) Um, So now if you, like me, are are wondering what any of this has to do with what is good news or Jesus, um, let me make it plain for you. So you and I have been called to bear fruit. That's what we have been created to do. And the Bible tells us that if we are believers, we will bear fruit. And people will be able to see that fruit and it will point them to Jesus. The other similarity between us and the fig tree is that the fruit that we produce is a little bit different than regular fruit, right? That analogy doesn't follow with us all the way. Because most fruit is supposed to be eaten. It provides nourishment. It provides sustenance. Our fruit is supposed to be seen right? The Holy Spirit provides nourishment and sustenance. Our fruit is supposed to point people in the direction of Jesus so that they see this good thing that we have. Our fruit should, be ev- fruit should be evident in our lives so that people can see it. But like the fig tree, unfortunately, everything about our nature, everything about the world we live in works against us being fruitful, We are called to be patient, but everything about our society says go, 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 move, move, rush, faster, quicker, faster, go, go, go. We're supposed to be kind and gentle, but everything about our nature makes us the opposite of that often. We ought to show patience and long-suffering, but instead we're often cruel. We're often short-tempered. Everything about us works against us being fruitful. And the good news is that if it were not for Jesus, that would be the final word. We are supposed to do something that we absolutely cannot do. If it were not for Jesus, then each and every one of us, every single day of our lives, from birth to death, The testimony of our story would be they were lush and leafy and completely barren. If not for the cross, then all of us would be just like that man writing into that poor website about that fig tree. I'm trying to be patient. I'm trying to be kind. I don't mean to lose my temper with my family. I don't mean to walk around and be impatient or ugly or nasty, but it seems like there I go again. I'm saying things I don't want to say. I'm doing things I don't want to do. We would be lush and leafy and completely barren. But that is not our testimony because it's not our responsibility to produce the fruit in our own lives. Jesus Christ died on a cross so that we would be fruitful, So that we would be lush, leafy, and with a whole lot of patience, love, kindness, long-suffering, all of that good stuff. (laughs) You and I are not responsible for producing the harvest. We are simply called into a kingdom, loved by a father who has given us everything that we need to be fruitful. See, in your own strength, there is absolutely no way that you will ever be a good witness for the Lord. In your own strength, you cannot live out your faith in a just way. In your own strength, you ain't going to point nobody to nothing but hell. I promise you. (laughs) But we don't do it in our own strength. We have a Holy Spirit inside of us who teaches us, who leads us, who guides us. And the better news, if that's not enough is that when Jesus looks down on us, when the Lord, when God the Father looks at us, he doesn't see a barren tree. There may be times, there will be times, (laughs) where you will feel fruitless. There are going to be times where we stumble, where we struggle, where we desire desperately to have this thing that we know God has called us to do, to be this thing that God has called us to be, and yet here we find ourselves falling, tripping, stumbling yet again. There will be times in your life where that will happen. But the beauty of God, the beauty of our Father is that when he sees us, he sees Jesus in us. Not only does he produce the fruit in our lives— But he sees the fruit that we don't even see yet. He sees what will be. That's how Paul can say in 2 Corinthians that we are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's huge. The righteousness of God. Us, filthy, wretched rags. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. See, we don't ever have to worry that we will be cursed. Once you come into this kingdom a thing that you can't do in your own strength, a thing that takes the Holy Spirit to happen. Once you enter this kingdom, then you will be fruitful. God will produce a harvest in your life, and we will not be stumbling blocks to those who would otherwise believe. Now, what does this mean for us in terms of practical application? The first thing it means is that we need to trust God. (laughs) I think one of the biggest reasons why we appear to be hypocritical to folk, while we often are stumbling blocks, while we get in the way of the work that God is trying to do, is because we spend so much time trying to do it ourselves. You see someone, and instead of trusting that just like you, (laughs) the Holy Spirit can save them and change them, and that maybe the best thing that you can do for them is pray and be a witness we feel like, oh no, 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 I got to change you. I need to make you know what's right. I need to make you do what's right. So the first thing that we can do is recognize that it is God who produces a harvest. It is God who produces the fruit. Our job is to just be a witness, and so we do that by following him, by serving him, by relying on him. The second thing that this means for us practically is that we ought to hold each other accountable. We are called new community for a reason, right? (laughs) Like We pick that name because we believe that God has called us to live with one another, to help one another. We're a body. It's not this individual walk that you do on your own, just me and the Lord and that's all. No, we are a community. (laughs) So we hold each other accountable. We push each other. We challenge one another. We call one another out in love when we are being hindrances to what the Lord has called us to do. If you take nothing away um, from this sermon, and worship team, you guys can start coming back up. If you take nothing else away from this sermon, please walk from here knowing that God the Father is responsible for producing fruit in your life. That God the Father is responsible for producing fruit in the lives of those we pray and desperately desire to be saved. And God the Father is incapable of failing. So we will be, we are fruitful. If you'll pray with me. Hmm. Father, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you love us so that you desire us. I thank you that that love for us is demonstrated every single day of our lives. I thank you that you sent your son to die on a cross that we could be in relationship with you. I praise you, God, that each and every person in this room will be transformed into the likeness of Christ once you return, that each and every person in this room will be fruitful, that each of us is the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ because you sacrificed for us. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who are not stumbling blocks, who are not hindrances, but that we would move through this world reflecting the love that has been shown to us, the love that has been given to us. And I thank you for your word that promises that if we raise you, if we lift you up, you will draw all men, all people unto yourself. So, God, as we move forward from this place, let us always be mindful Let us always be careful to lift you up high. God, we praise you, we adore you, and we say that you are holy, wonderful, masterful Father. It's in Jesus' name that we stand on all of these promises that you have given and that we ask the things that we have asked. Amen.